This Washington Post Live podcast is sponsored by Cigna Healthcare. Don't just pay for a health plan, invest in a growth plan. You're listening to a podcast from Washington Post Live, bringing the newsroom to you live. Good morning and welcome to the Washington Post. I'm Francis Steed a senior writer here at the Post. Um, I'm joined today by Alex Will, who is the president of Calm, a meditation app. Alex, a very warm welcome to the Washington Post. Thank you very much for having me. Um, and welcome to everybody else here. Alex, I went to sleep last night with Calm, um, but I have to confess that when I did so, I was thinking mostly I try to get rid of the phone in the evenings at nighttime, and now you're telling us to pick it up to relax. Tell me about that. Uh, well, thank you for going to sleep with Calm <laughs> last night. Um, I think you're not the only one, uh, the fourth person to tell me that uh, this morning <laughs> already. Um, but I think this is an important question that you're raising. You know, I think a lot of people feel the impact that technology has had on us. Um, and there's a lot written about how it has brought new challenges to us. And so there's definitely a tension between you know, Calm being there to, to say we can help you through that phone. Um, I think the real critical thing to recognize is that for many people, um, stress, anxiety, general well-being is a harder thing, uh, is, is more prevalent in, in, in this world. And the one thing we often have with us is our phone, right? And so one of the things that's made Calm extremely successful is that we've been able to meet people where they are when they need it, um, whether that is to help relieve stress on a flight, whether that is um, you know, after a long work day and not being able to sleep. Um, so I think there is this tension, but at the same time, I think you know, one of the ways that we're able to have huge impact is we all have these devices with us most of the time. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's a way that we're able to reach people when they most need us. We also all have stress with us a lot of the time. Um, I think Gallup polls showed rising numbers again, 40% of people in this country, I think, reporting stress. Do you think those numbers are going to continue to go up? Are are they real numbers or are we reporting stress in a way we didn't before? What's, What's happening? Well, I think there's a number of ways we can look at this. I think on the one hand, one can read all the data and the data clearly is showing that we are living in, I think, unprecedented times around general stress and anxiety. I think one other thing is one can just look in the mirror in the morning of how we all feel as individuals, as humans, and I think we're all juggling and managing a great deal more than you know, maybe 20 or 30 years ago, and technology obviously plays a big role in that. Um, it's clear to us when we look at the consumers that are using our products, um, whether it's the businesses that have brought Calm Business um, into the workplace, uh, and even as we talk with some of our healthcare partners, that these problems are very real. Um, And what's interesting to us is that they're not just happening in small pockets. Um, To give you an example, with Calm Business, we support all different types of employers. Um, So they could be uh, retail populations, on the feet populations, um, large corporations of office workers, knowledge workers. And the things that people are reporting and sharing and the types of content they're engaging with very similar. Um, So on the one hand, I think the data is definitely true. I think when I look to my own life of juggling two young boys who turn five and three this October, there's a lot going on. And um, we definitely feel that we are, you know, doing our very best to support this crisis. You mentioned, of course, Calm Business, and we talked about Calm to start with. I think Calm was launched in 2012, is Mm -hmm. that right? And then eight years later, so we're in pandemic land then, you launched Calm Business. Tell me about the difference between those two approaches, what Calm Business brings to the business model you had before. Yeah, so I think what's very interesting is, you know, 10, 11 years ago when Calm was first launched, 
the conversation around mental health wasn't like this. You know, you think about the conversation we're having today um, and, and much of the leadership that's happening by many companies to help drive these conversations, that wasn't existing so much then. I think fast forward to 2020, um, Calm and many others had helped push forward the conversation on mental health, was definitely becoming more mainstream. And I think the COVID pandemic, you know, candidly, pushed that conversation and jolted us maybe even five years further forward on the mental health conversation. And with Calm Business specifically, what we were finding is companies were coming to us asking us, can you support our employees? How can we do that? And so I think for us, from a business perspective, it gave us the opportunity to invest and build um, the, the platform for work and mental health. And you know, now we have 3,500 customers and it's you know, one of the fastest growing parts of Calm. So Alex, tell me a little bit more about what the pandemic meant for you. Were you already thinking of creating Calm Business before the pandemic? And then how has that, how has the pandemic and the experience so many people had of remote work and, and existential anxieties about illness mm -hmm. played into how employees um, relate to their employees and vice versa? Yeah, so we definitely begun Calm Business before the pandemic, and it was very much a response to, to customers. Customers coming to us saying, we'd love to bring this to our employees. Can you help us with more? I think what the pandemic did is it just put this front and center for leadership teams, for exec teams, um, where this suddenly became a, what are we doing about mental health for our employees? Um, and it became from a nice to have to a need to have. And I think there became an urgency around bringing this to their populations right away. I think over the next two to three years, what we've seen is you know, a, a, a rapid shift in um, the landscape. So you know, the pandemic had those first few years when a lot of people were at home. Folks mm -hmm. have now returned to, to offices in, in different formats. But all that is still sort of uncertain for, for a lot of workers. And so what we found with our customers is they're, they're seeking even more support for their workers. So to give you an example, um, one of the areas we've been supporting is by giving folks more access to information on how their employees are feeling. Um, we, you know, we saw recently um, a big uptick with one of our, our customers seeing uh, leading into anxiety content in and around performance reviews. Um, another one of our customers was going through a merger and they, they started to see in the data that actually people were leaning into to content around stress. And what that helps them do is actually be able to understand some of the issues their employees are facing and then support them through content or other programs that we help with. So uh, mental health has often been a sort of an HR concern. Is it becoming a C-suite concern? You know, where, where are you seeing it? 100%. Moving? I think that's the shift that's probably happening right. where this is becoming a, a conversation that CEOs want to know um, what are we doing for mental health for our employees. And I think, you know, the way to think about calm in that, in that context, very often, if you imagine a mental health spectrum, a lot of conversation goes around the more acute end of the spectrum. I think where we position ourselves is we support large swathes of a population because mental health can show up in lots of different ways, whether it is you know, stress before a flight, whether it is um, actually supporting your children, um, whether it is uh, just an overall well-being feeling. What we focused on is being able to support a very large population within an employer. So still, I'm, I'm sort of thinking we're talking generally about employers, but um, people who work in a hospital have very different stresses from people who work in a newsroom, um, as we have up here, um, or, or, or many other uh, different types of employment, how do you adjust to or cater to the di or learn about the yeah. different kind of stresses that come out of those different workplaces? So you're absolutely right. What's really fascinating to us is that, you know, if you take uh, 
some of our largest provider uh, customers who have you know nurses and doctors as populations mm. using calm um, versus you know a, a a more corporate type job as you described you know as a newsroom um, the types of content are quite similar uh, in in the generic buckets they fall into. But one of the things we try and do is actually create content that will really resonate with certain groups. Um, and so that's one of the things we've worked on over the past decade is to create content that is super compelling for all different types of folks. And then very specifically, we also make sure that the voices that you hear from Incom are, are very diverse in their representation. And the reason for that is that people will find it more engaging to hear from people that they can actually recognize and see right. themselves in. So we hear that so much, you know, meet people where they are and, and faces that look familiar and things like that. But what surprised you most? I mean, you're coming up with this data, you're talking to CEOs of major companies in different sectors just over the last few years. What's been the biggest surprise that's come? I mean, there's, there's a lot. I think I think one thing is how many people find it very hard to get back to sleep. So I, I feel like that's <laughs> it's, it's, it sounds quite sort of tactical, no. but but actually that waking up in the middle of the night and getting back to sleep is something I hear over and over and over again, and how that causes individuals a lot of stress. Um, and I think one big thing that maybe has surprised me at a macro level is that you know, maybe a decade ago people used to brag about how much sleep, how little sleep they would get. And nowadays, I think people really understand that that's a really important foundation to, you know, feeling happy and healthy in general. So I can remember editing, editing a piece for the Post by a psychologist some years ago, and she said she'd be out of work if everybody got the sleep they needed, <laughs> which is, I think, a very resonant point here. But, but again, and more specifically, what surprised you about how people respond or how, what you've learned about it, you know, one particular sector of work or the commonalities between, apart from sleep, between... Mm how people respond to your app and... Well, I think, I think one thing is that, that people do respond. I think maybe what's maybe one surprising thing is that you know, when we drop into a company, we tend to get 30 to 50% of that company engaging with Calm. Mm -hmm. Typically, when you have these employer-led solutions, it's in the low single-digit percentages. So I think maybe one surprise for me has been how universal these needs have been. Um, you know, whether you know, two companies could look totally different it could be in completely different countries, right. but the needs are very, very similar. Um, so perhaps that's a surprise. And then maybe one surprise in the speed that it's happened is the C-suite recognizing that this is an ROI question, not just a mental health question, that people are understanding that investing in mental health is good for the bottom line and that they looking after their workforce on this dimension is going to lead to a happier, healthier, but crucially more successful company. Right. So we've had questions that have come in from our audience, and I want to ask, I'm going to read it to you. Um, this comes from Jim Lynn from Alabama, who asks, how do you enhance well-being when a major stressor in corporate culture today is the unpredictability of layoffs? Oof. Yes, the thing that hangs over so many people's heads. Yeah, and I think the last few years have certainly um, been very, very challenging on that dimension. Right. Um, and, and I think we're also very sanguine at Calm of the areas we can support and also the areas that it's going to be very hard for us to actually have an impact. I think the biggest thing that we can do and where we support our employers is to have content and tools that support the mental health of their workforce at all times. Um, and that, that support... Um, you know, we certainly hope we'll, we'll support through all the challenges of business, layoffs being one of them. Mm. Um, and, and I think, you know, at the end of the day, it is again that point that I was making earlier of being available 
at all times when someone needs us is actually the biggest thing that we can offer because it's, it's not about waiting three weeks to speak to a therapist or having to do something. It's in your pocket, it's on demand, it's when you need it, we're there to support. So we've been talking a lot about the app, but just describe it a little bit for people who aren't as familiar. I, I was very intrigued by moving through and seeing I could find stories to go to sleep with or music or breathing exercises and it aimed at a different range of ages as well. Yeah, so I'm, I mean, the app, uh, it's been downloaded 130 million times, I think, so far. And I think I, I share that because through that entire iteration and journey over the last decade, one of the things we've been so passionate about is how to make people feel just that little bit better. You know, we started life with meditation um, and bringing that to uh, a large amount of people across the world. One of the things we learned was that people were using their phone at night before bed, which led to the birth of this concept of sleep stories. Um, you know, not a crazy thought when you have young children and you read to them every night, but the idea that we could reimagine the bedtime story for grown-ups. Um, and you know, we've been very fortunate to have amazing voices like a Matthew McConaughey read you a bedtime story, um, and or a LeBron James, uh, and and so we bring magical voices, incredible stories um, to help people fall asleep, also fall back asleep. And, and one can think about calm as something to support your mental health uh, journey um, whenever you need it. Um, and meditation and sleep being two big pillars, but there's lots of other parts of the product that, that support in different ways. I want to ask you about another huge topic, AI. You mm -hmm. use AI-driven technology. I got a message on my phone this morning telling me I needed calm for sleep. Um, <laughs> Tell me how you personalize um, the app for people, how you use AI, and whether you think AI is eventually going to be perceived as a general good, because I think at the moment there's an awful lot of fear about AI out there. Yeah, for sure. Um, I think on the personalization front, this is really important. So when you come into Calm and you tell us the things that you're looking to improve, whether it's sleep, relaxation, you know, we're constantly trying to make that product experience better for you. Um, and you know, the way you could imagine that is if we see you engaging with content and completing content, uh, we'll know to surface that for you again. Um, and so we, we'll, we'll, we'll try and continue to build the most personalized experience we can for you. Um, as it relates to AR more broadly, I, I think there's no arguing that this is the next big technological shift that's coming. Um, and you could certainly say this, this could be even bigger than the internet. And, and I think the, the questions being raised around what this could mean uh, are absolutely real. Um, I think as we think about it within Calm, we think it can be an incredible tool for good because um, within the confines of Calm, it's about creating an experience that helps people feel the most happy and healthy that they can. Um, so it's a very, very powerful technology. Um, I think we're still in the early innings of what will be something that plays out over decades. Um, and as we look at it within Calm, we think it can represent an ability for us to support many tens of millions of individuals through even better experiences. And of course, baby boomers will have probably very different needs from Gen Xs. How do you talk to employers or what questions do employers have you about how to navigate those differences in terms of mental health needs? Um, absolutely, huge differences there. And I think with, with Gen X, it's, it's something we hear a lot from our employer customers. It's also something we reflect in our content. So a lot of the content we have 
with income speaks to these different demographics. Um, and you know, for example, we'll have a, a Camila Cabello, who's a, a, a tremendous singer, um, and uh, we'll have her in the app talking about mental health, or a Sean Mendez um, talking about his experience. And, and I use those as two examples because I think again with Gen X, you know, they they they'll want certain things, and Gen Z will want you know voices that they can recognize and talking about mental health in terms that they understand. Right. And here we are talking about mental health. Um, are you at all concerned that giving people a meditation app might distract from some more serious questions about mental illness mm -hmm. that we all know? We have a mental health crisis in this country and elsewhere at the moment that we all know is prevalent. Are you worried about giving people an app and having them look after themselves in the quiet when what they may need is a therapist or a psychiatrist? I think this is a great question and something we, we take quite seriously at Calm. I think, look, let's be very clear. We believe at Calm we are in the middle of a mental health crisis. We also feel very grateful to be working on a problem that we think is one of the most important problems of our generation. Um, and we don't think it's going anywhere. So I think you know, that's the, the framing. I think within that, we recognize where Calm can help. So it's clearly a subclinical product that can support. You know, so a, a subclinical yeah, product. Yeah, very much okay. a subclinical product that can support huge amounts of people because we're trying to support as many people as possible. Um, that said, one of the reasons we built Calm Business was actually because we recognized that in the workplace there were some specific needs. Um, so we've built out Calm Business in a way to support employers. And more recently, we've launched Calm Health, which while still subclinical, is a product that is supporting um, payers, providers, and large-scale employers um, within mental health, and very crucially, trying to alleviate some of the strain on the healthcare system, trying to help with triage and understanding um, where people are on the uh, mental health acuity spectrum, and helping to, to alleviate some of the burden of, of a resourcing perspective within healthcare. So we're beginning to look ahead. What do you want to have happen or what would you like to see happen in the next five to 10 years among employers and among other producers of uh, content like yours? Yeah, well, I think, firstly, I think within five to 10 years, it would be amazing to see you know, an even greater acceleration around the importance and the recognition of mental health in people's homes, in the workplace, and then you know, in the healthcare system more broadly. I think that's sort of the first piece. Mm. I think many of the folks in this room and, and many people within the mental health broader ecosystem are helping to drive that conversation. And I think that's very, very exciting. Um, and I think if employers are able to understand and really get this idea that investing in mental health will be good for the financial outcome of companies, um, that mental health is crucial for the well-being of their employees, but also really recognizing that that will be good for business in the long term, I think that will be an incredibly good thing um, because it will mean greater investment um, and more tools for employees to, um, to support them on their journey. So right at the beginning of our conversation, you talked about having a five and a three, oh, about to be five and mm -hmm. about to be three-year-old, I think. Yep. Birthday's in October. Two sons mm -hmm. back in London, yes. right? Um, that's for everybody knows small children are stressful. How have your personal experiences informed the way you approach work and the business that you're running yourself? Yeah, it's, it's a great question. And uh, I've I found my kids to be more teachers to me than me to them for, for, for one way or another in the sense that they reflect back so much. A, a good example actually is my, my oldest son wakes me up every morning, uh, usually at a time before I would like to wake up. And, uh, and one of the interesting things I found is, and this comes back to the relationship with technology, he and I would have a morning cuddle uh, and 
I could reach for my phone and look at an email or open my email. And the moment I've done that, I'm no longer with him. Right. And so I think Broken one of the things, yeah, I'm now on that treadmill. And I think we've all experienced that. You'd come and, and you're lost. And I think one thing my children have shown me is kind of this importance of trying to be in the moment as much with them. Um, watching them when they just play for sometimes a very long period of time and get lost in that joy is something that I think maybe we as adults do less and less of as we get older. Um, so they've been a great mirror for me to do that and to also find ways to, to, to not pick up the phone and just be with them for a while. I have to one last question. Are you going to give your kids phones <laughs> at what age? Um, have a sense? Yeah. I haven't discussed that with my wife yet. Uh, but, <laughs> okay, but, but, break but probably the news not on rushing. Here. Probably, not rushing. News? probably not rushing, you know, to not do rushing. it. Yeah. Alex Well, that's a great note to, to end on. Thank you so much for joining for us today. Me. Thank you. Good morning and welcome back. For those of you just joining us, I'm Frances Steed Sellers and I'm a senior writer here at the Washington Post. And now I'm delighted to be joined by Kelly Greenwood. We just met outside. And uh, she is the CEO and founder of Mindshare Partners. Kelly, a very warm welcome. Thank you so much. It's an honor to be here. I actually grew up in Washington, D.C., so this is a full circle moment. Good. Welcome back. <laughs> <laughs> so your company, the company you founded, is one of the only nonprofits devoted to this area of employer um, mental health. Tell me how you came up with the idea. Absolutely. So it is very personal to me. Uh, so I have generalized anxiety disorder, which is very well managed now. And I don't actually sort of identify with that. I feel like I'm sort of recovered or in recovery. Um, but twice in my life, it's led to debilitating depression. And I've always been a very high performer. I went to competitive schools. It was in competitive workplaces. And uh, I had a tremendous amount of shame and self-stigma around this. And um, ultimately uh, realized that I wanted to create the resources that I wished that I'd had when I was struggling and that my manager and organization had had too. Thank you. Um, how do you go about cultivating employer support for this approach and how has it changed since you started? Absolutely. Well, so much has changed. Uh, definitely a silver lining of the pandemic. I think we were starting to be at an inflection point prior, um, but that really poured gasoline all over it. Um, so at Mindshare Partners, we are really uh, trying to drive culture change around mm -hmm. workplace mental health specifically so that both organizations and employees can thrive. And the goals are really twofold. One is to normalize what it looks like to have a mental health challenge at work, which is just about all of us at some point in our lives, and also to address the workplace factors that can contribute to poor mental health for everybody so that we don't have a Band-Aid solution. So when we think about how to do that, um, it is really culture change, and culture change on any issue really requires a top-down and a bottoms-up approach. And so um, we really look to support um, employers through our workplace uh, custom training and strategic advising and implementation services. We work with leading uh, industry clients like BlackRock and Pinterest and Morrison Forster. Mm -hmm. um, and you know, in terms of the top-down approach, we really look for leaders to um, be vulnerable and share their own stories and also to model mentally healthy behaviors at work. Um, and most importantly, to really uh, prioritize a culture that is sustainable and healthy for everybody, right? Right. So, Kevin, you said something very important, I think. You said it's about all of us. And I want to read back to you a quote you said before. Employers should view mental health as a collective responsibility, not just an individual one. 
Tell me a little bit more about what you meant by that. It's a very heartfelt phrase. Thank you. Absolutely. So um, I think originally, you know, maybe let's say five years ago, even employers said, okay, we have an EAP or we'll give you mental health benefits. Go deal with your mental health challenges outside of work. Go to your therapist. We don't want to hear about it. Um, and really, most workplaces cause tremendous amounts of stress, right, and burnout. Right. <laughs> and so they are the problem in many respects. I mean, certainly there are, you know, people that have pre-existing mental health conditions and obviously right. lots of other stressors lately. Um, but it's, it really is imperative if um, workplaces truly want to move the needle on this issue for them to own their part in, in mental health. And so when we think about workplace factors that can exacerbate um, existing mental health challenges or, or create new ones, there are things like lack of flexibility, lack of work-life balance or integration, um, lack of autonomy, um, toxic managers, toxic cultures, all of those things. And, you know, senior leaders and even um, team managers really have the ability to influence that. So we want them to take responsibility for their part. So I think you have now more than 100 corporate clients mm -hmm. and you focus largely, as you've said, on training. What do your clients tell you about the challenges they're facing with employees? Yeah, absolutely. That's a great question. Um, you know, I think some of it depends on the sector. Um, you know, I think certainly Gen Z versus Gen X and baby boomers are very different populations and have very different expectations of their employers. Just tell me a little bit specific <laughs> about that. <laughs> Not to offend anyone. Yeah. Um, so, you know, I think, and, and we, I saw this with my dad, um, uh, but he was, you know, very, had a lot, a lot of stigma around mental health. Um, and I think one of the, one of the nicest things he said to me was a few years after a really, one of my two really bad episodes, he's like, I, I really now realize that this wasn't your fault. Um, and that meant so much to me, right? That it wasn't something that I could just power through, but that it was, it was truly, you know, a, a chemical and, and sort of, um, social emotional issue. But, uh, so I've definitely seen that play out with especially some of the CEOs that we work with. Mm -hmm. um, you know, they're willing to talk about, uh, you know, their wife or their daughter's mental health challenge, but not their own. Um, and Gen Z, you know, is far more used to talking about these things. And I think that's like a, a remarkable and super productive uh, culture clash that's happening at work and frankly was starting to happen even before the pandemic. Um, because Gen Z, you know, grew up going, and, and some of millennials grew up going to colleges and high schools where they had mental health clubs and lots of their friends were in therapy and it wasn't taboo and it wasn't taboo to talk about it. And all of a sudden they get to the workplace and you're not supposed to talk about it. And um, so I think just the expectations um, for younger generations in particular about what um, an employer should be and what that should look like from a mentally healthy perspective are radically different. So your, your company puts out, a, or your nonprofit puts out a, a report twice mm. a year, I think, and there was one in 2019, and we've got, or since 2019, we've got one coming up in October. Yes. Can you preview the upcoming one just a little bit? And also tell me what's changed since sure. 2019. Absolutely. Well, so we have been fortunate to um, have Qualtrics as our in-kind mm -hmm. partner um, for that since the start. Um, and we're one of the few organizations that has research with um, comparative pre-pandemic data. I think more have been coming into the fields, but they don't have that sort of unique 
uh, apples to apples comparison. And so I think one of the things we saw certainly during the pandemic is that in our in our 2021 report um, was the fact that, um, you know, folks were obviously struggling much more with their mental health. They had more symptoms of mental health challenges. Um, but also they felt more comfortable talking about it at work because mm -hmm. everybody was was affected, right? Nobody, I think, could say they had great mental health in the middle of the pandemic and the racial justice reckoning that mm -hmm. followed. Mm -hmm. um, and they also felt very supported by their employers because, I mean, we certainly saw a huge influx of people in March 2020 saying, okay, we get that this, we need to do something about this, what do we do? And so employers were throwing all sorts of resources and money toward this issue. And then now what we're finding for our 2023 report is that, um, you know, I, I heard you talking with Alex about the mental health crisis, and that's very much true in general. I would say in what we're seeing in our data with workers is that it's more of a languishing right now to Adam Grant's term um, a, a couple years ago. So certainly there are mental health issues, but um, what we found in the data this year is that employees said that they had lower um, prevalence of symptoms, but then at the same time, they, they rated their overall mental health lower. And so that, that seems to be contradictory. Um, right. And I, I think that that, I mean, to extrapolate um, and sort of hypothesize about where that came from, I think some of it may just be that languishing effect, right? Um, you know, things were sort of coming out of the pandemic, but things still aren't great. You know, there are, um, you know, job insecurities, layoffs, um, forced return to work, all these things. Um, but it's less of sort of a crisis, at least in the workplace. And it's more of this languishing feeling. So you have a program I want to ask you about called Leaders Go First, and it's not about layoffs. Um, <laughs> <laughs> but, Maybe it should be. <laughs> but tell me about the impact. This is about leaders speaking up first and actually owning their own emotional and mental health struggles in front of their employees, being vulnerable. Right. How has that worked and how do you foster an openness? Yeah, well, first of all, um, back to what I was sharing earlier, you know, we all have mental health challenges at some point in our life. And I think the last few years have really shown that, right? Mm -hmm. It can be a diagnosable mental health condition or it can be stress or burnout or grief, something that's fleeting. Um, but it but it is a universal, a universal experience. It's part of being human, just like our physical health goes back and forth over the course of our lives. Um, and so when I first started Mindshare Partners in 2017, I really wanted to have business leaders come out about their mental health challenges, sort of um, looking to the success of the LGBTQ movement in sort of catalyzing culture change through workplaces with, um, you know, workplace allies and such. And no one was willing to do it. Um, and so we have come so far and I'm so proud um, because in May for Mental Health Awareness Month this year, Mindshare launched our Leaders Go First campaign, which is a um, C-suite storytelling campaign about personal mental health experiences. So from the I voice, it's not the wife, it's not the daughter, it's not the friend, it is yeah. me. Easy to speak about the Yeah, the which is so much more powerful. Right. And um, we actually um, had 
uh, a special message from uh, Dr. Murthy, the U.S. Surgeon General, um, at the start of that campaign to sort of kick it off. And then we had 10 C-suite leaders share their stories on video and just incredibly powerful and diverse stories of very real and common mental health challenges. And so when we actually go in and do workshops at companies, one of the most powerful things that we do, which I think is actually pretty unique to Mindshare Partners, is we will coach um, a leader, a business leader, so not a likely suspect from HR um, or the DEI team, uh, and we, we coach them to share their personal story. And it's not always in the I voice. Um, uh, for example, I coached uh, the CEO of a private equity firm who was similarly aged to my dad, maybe slightly younger, and he got emotional um, at the start of the, the workshop, which was for his whole company. And I think for folks to see that and see that vulnerability um, and then also hear about it, its effect on his own mental health did so much more than we could do in a workshop because it was someone who was within that organization, who was a business leader, who was senior, and who was opening up. So that really gives employees permission to talk about mental health if they want to. Do you, do you think it also makes employees rally behind that leader more? I mean, I'm wondering about the impact on the businesses. Absolutely, absolutely. That is incredibly very much the case. So one of, um, one of the leaders uh, that shared their story um, is actually the uh, COO of the Minnesota Vikings, and he's a business school classmate of mine. And he talked about his depression, and he had first done that at the Vikings at the height of COVID, at the start, and he did that in an all-team meeting, I believe, um, and really just said, you know, hey, I know what it's like to go through something hard, and you may be experiencing mental health challenges. Let me tell you about mine and how I've dealt with it. And he um, then, and then I believe after the video that he did for our campaign, just received a huge influx of emails and texts from his team thanking him for doing that and certainly applauding his courage in doing so, but also sharing their own stories. And everyone has a story. And you have a story. You talked about it at the beginning. You announced this week that you're going to be stepping down when you're in this wave of huge success. Tell me about that. Yes, so that was a very hard decision. Um, I am a little, uh, I'm on a time zone difference right now. I live in San Francisco <laughs> and I've also been working really hard since we had the announcement on Tuesday, yeah. uh, the public announcement. Um, but, you know, ultimately, I really feel at this point that. Um, stepping down is the right decision. So I want to stay as um, founder and board member only um, and really continue to contribute to the movement um, and to Mindshare Partners from that platform. Alex backstage was actually telling me that um, oftentimes when C founders and CEOs step down into a similar role, it's sort of like a grandparent experience. So you have the best <laughs> of both worlds, which I loved and had not heard that analogy before. So I'm very much hoping that's true. Um, but uh, for me, you know, I think to your point, Mindshare and the movement has just achieved so much success in, in such a short amount of time. When I started Mindshare in 2017, um, there were maybe two mental health employee resource groups that I knew of in the country or, or frankly in the world. And now we have over 500 companies represented in our free virtual community for leaders of mental health employee resource groups. And so just to see that progress and mm. these leaders sharing in such amount of 
such a short amount of time has really been remarkable. So I think for me, organizationally, the time was right because um, we really are moving into our next phase of growth as an organization. Um, it's going to be a very next different job for the next seven years. And um, a lot of the really important things are not the things that I most enjoy. Um, and so I really want to focus on the things that, that do bring me most joy and are supportive to my mental health. Um, and then also the workplace mental health movement as a whole is at an inflection point. And right. so I think the time right. is right for a refreshed vision as well. We've achieved uh, a lot of my initial vision, which, which is shocking to me still. Um, and then personally, you know, it's been a very hard few years. Um, you know, I think as most leaders have experienced, certainly leading and in my case, parenting two small kids through COVID, um, the racial justice reckoning, mm -hmm. climate change. I live in San Francisco. There's been some very scary mm -hmm. orange sky mm -hmm. days. Um, you know, and the political divide has just been a lot. And then not to mention, you know, the fact that workplace mental health intersects with everything that's going on. So one of my best friends from college was actually telling me about a year ago when I was saying how I was feeling, you know, kind of burned out. She was, she was saying, you know, well, most people go to work and they can forget about all these problems in the world. And you go to work and <laughs> you have to problems. not only take care of your team, which I think right. there are increased expectations for a female CEO yeah. to do, um, and but also, you know, you are writing about this, you're coaching your clients on how to get through it. So you're not getting rid of these problems during the time that you're working. So for me, um, you know, I think Jacinda Ardern stepping down really resonated with me in January. And that's part of what got me thinking um, just about the fact that a lot of top leader roles are not sustainable um, for the long term. And that's because of structural issues and expectations on top leaders, not anything that we're doing wrong or that the organizations are doing wrong. And so I think now it's really time for me to pass the baton to a new leader um, and, and really do the things that can rejuvenate me and, and practice what we preach. I'm going to try and squeeze in one uh, audience question because I'd love to hear from other people. Absolutely. And this one comes from Paul Sergener from Maryland to us. How do we change the perception of well-being among employers from a once-a-year issue that can be resolved by one-off gimmicks, like an annual <laughs> stipend or summer Fridays, to an ongoing process of change? Yes. We have to be quick, but it's a big question. Yes, it is a big question, a very important one. Yeah, very uh, we important. will not do one-off events anymore for huh. Mental Health Awareness Month or World Mental Health Day because it's a check-the-box thing and we want culture change. And so, again, getting back to the original question, you know, we really think about culture changes tops down, which I've talked about a lot of the ways to do that, including you know ongoing trainings and really baking that into your work norms and having that be a part of everyday conversation, not necessarily mental health, but you know, what can we do? How can we make this a better place to work in terms of you know, not sending emails at night or on the weekends or, or things like that? But then also that bottoms up piece, right? And so having individual contributors, having everyone at that grassroots level participate in mental health employee resource groups, be a peer champion, have a peer listening program. And so really threading it throughout the fabric of the organization. Kelly Greenwood, what a wonderful message to end on, threading it through the fabric of the organization. Thank you so much for joining us here today. My pleasure. Thank you so much for having me. Thank you for the work you've done. And stay with us, everybody. We'll be back in a few minutes. The following segment was produced and paid for by a Washington Post Live event sponsor. The Washington Post newsroom was not involved in the production of this content. Hi, I'm Elise Labatt, and today we're talking about creating a more health-centered workplace. Most employees are going to feel more supported and more productive in an environment where their employer is 
treating them as a whole person and their whole health. And to talk about how sometimes these health problems are invisible. We can't always see them. And employees aren't exactly sh sharing with their employer about things that they're dealing with. And so to talk about how employees can help with these so-called invisible health issues and create a health place where Work, workers feel more supported. I'm joined by Jill Vaslow. She's the vice president of talent and, for, and well-being at Cigna Healthcare. Jill, thanks for joining us. Thanks, Elise. Happy to be here. When we're talking about health in the workplace, I think a lot of times there's this culture in America where even if we're sick, we work through, right? We don't call in for a sick day. Um, or we just kind of suffer in silence. Mm -hmm. And it's really hard for employers to know if employees are suffering because a lot of times they don't share it or a lot of times these health issues aren't apparent. Um, so what can employers do? I think a starting place is really just the acknowledgement that these invisible health conditions are, are out there, right? So as we think about how to even like conceptualize what we mean by an invisible health condition, like they are things that very obviously just aren't apparent to, to the eye, right? And that means that when we don't understand that those things are happening for an individual, we're treating that individual with our sort of social and, pro and professional expectations. Yeah, they're fine. Yeah, healthy person. And so then when that individual needs to take a moment away for an, uh, an appointment or um, maybe comes into work a little bit more like distracted with a little brain fog. A little like, sluggish. Yeah, we haven't, we haven't even conceptualized as their partner, their manager, their team, that something else is going on beyond um, a healthy person showing up to work every day. Yeah, and I know that Cigna, because we've worked together over the years, that Cigna considers the whole employee and their whole health. But I think a lot of times, if it's not apparent, then that automatically means stress, burnout, mental health issues. That's what we don't see. But it, there's a lot more to these invisible health issues. Talk about what's, what are the, some of these issues that we're talking about? Yeah, I mean, I think it's, it's, it's so rich. And um, just to share you know, with you and with the audience, you know, I too am the, um, I'm working my way through an invisible health issue, right? So. I was diagnosed at the beginning of the summer with frozen shoulder. So unless you ask me to lift something heavy over my head, um, you would not know that my shoulder doesn't move, right? And it means though that from some of the issues that Alex talked about in the first se session, like I, my shoulder stops me from sleeping. Um, that means that when I come into work in the day, I'm a little foggy. My shoulder keeps me from um, being able to do all of the activities that I would normally do to work every day. I don't like to move my arm, and as a result of that, I delay typing things. That means that sometimes I put off getting something done, making the notes, sending out the email, whatever. Um, that, and ultimately, I have to spend time away from my work day pursuing healthcare, asking questions about where I should go, what I should be doing. I need to take time away to do those appointments. And in that span of things that I deal with in my own invisible health condition, most of my colleagues know that's going on for me. I'll show up on video and I'll have a heating pad on my shoulder that lends itself to an invitation for people to ask what's going right, on. Right, but I think 
I'm sure there are a lot of people in this room that are like in chronic pain of some issue or another, and they just don't tell anybody. Right. But th there are a lot of other health issues right. that we've discussed. Right. right, so it wraps further out into things that we probably do think about in the chronic condition space, diabetes, asthma, arthritis, like those sort of crippling abilities to do some of the things that you need to do every day, um, further out into the mental health space. Many people can be operating on a daily basis with depression or anxiety and not demonstrate that in a way that you know that there's a challenge for them. Um, neurodivergent individuals who might be um, working through ADHD or maybe on the autism spectrum. And then it even wraps sort of further out into uh, like challenges that come from societal or external factors. So someone who is a caregiver and is struggling with the demands of like a new situation for themselves and maybe the stress that comes from that. Um, individuals who are um, just discovering what it means to be in menopause, um, struggling with isolation or loneliness, and ultimately even just the challenges of some of the inequities of the healthcare system, like those things in and of themselves can be challenges for an individual that we're not watching for and we don't know are um, things that may need support. Let's talk about some of the costs associated with this mental health issues. There are, some are visible, like they cost money, but some are also invisible to the overall health of the company. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think that the you know the most tangible and measurable ones are always things like utilization of the healthcare system, right? Like that is a cost to the individual, it's a cost to the company, to the company's health or plan. Or a sick day. I'm sorry. Or a sick day. Yeah, and for sure, I mean, sick days, not only are sick days, like they're a payment that the employer is making for somebody when they're not at work, but it means that we're losing the productivity of that individual. And I think even from an individual's perspective, like what if you work somewhere that you don't have a paid sick day or paid right. time off? It can be really detrimental. And I think back to your point at the beginning, it can be a place where people don't choose not to come to work. Yeah, they come to work, but they're not exactly like productive or... Right, right. And that's where you go into the right. invisible. Right, and that in that moment where it would be more supportive for the person to take a day off and stay at home, and like it, it since we started talking about musculoskeletal issues with my arm, you know, um, we we know that one in two Americans suffer with some aspect of musculoskeletal issues, and that leads to more time away from work than any of the other chronic conditions that we have. Ultimately, a $420 billion cost to the healthcare system. $420 billion just for muscular, yeah, for musculoskeletal. That back pain, that, yeah. that frozen shoulder. It's, that's more than heart, we were talking, that's more than heart disease or any other chronic condition. Yeah, yeah, as that. So I'm, I am the benefits leader at my company in addition to being a Cigna employee, and it's the thing that we struggle with the most in our own employee population. $100 million, my health plan for my employees, uh, that musculoskeletal what, What's the cost us. on productivity now? These are like less visible costs. I, as, as an individual, perhaps feels like unseen and disconnected from the workplace, um, they begin, they can begin to step away from being engaged every day. Um, I think that the holistic impact from a productivity perspective comes from the examples that I gave you about myself, right? The, I need to be going away to my physical therapy appointment, or I am distracted because I am spending some time 
like planning my next healthcare experience, even though I'm sitting at my desk, but ultimately it wraps further out into things that are less measurable, like the brain fog that might come from being at work when you didn't get good sleep, or maybe the brain You're fog that comes from being through dealing with menopause. Um, or pain. Pain, for sure. Like pain is very much a distraction. I mean, I told you my story of the way that maybe I'm not typing because I don't want to re-aggregate with uh, re-aggravate what's happening with my arm, and so all of those things kind of collect together in a way that it's lost productivity for the individual, lost productivity for the company. So of course, it makes a lot of sense for employers. Both, you know, we we definitely bring the humanistic lens to the way that we think about our employees. Like we we bring our mission to our employees, and we care about them, but for any employer and you know come back to the way that kelly was talking in the last session there's just so much value just in improving the productivity experience of your company by ensuring that people can stay well and have the support that they need to get to resources when they're looking okay for so it. let's go deeper on that how can employers start thinking about addressing these invisible health issues in the workplace that their employees are struggling? Because I think you, we don't realize that more people are probably struggling with them than, right. than we know. Right, right. Um, I, I do think the starting place for anybody, again, kind of hearkening back to that last session, is um, beginning to focus on creating an open culture that allows people to talk about it. Like we start that conversation for ourselves very similarly. We do a lot of storytelling. We use all of our internal communication channels to ensure that employees can see sometimes our C-suite individuals, but sometimes just another employee that looks like them. Working through some one condition that again, maybe if you were interacting with me at work, you would never know that I was struggling with something, but I share publicly that I have a challenge, I'm working through, and then we partner that like openness and destigmatization with like highlighting the resources that we're offering to employees to help somebody like step in and begin care through a navigation channel, through a coaching channel, through a social community that we might have at work to ensure that they feel like like resourced and surrounded by people that care about getting to a good solution. Because sometimes there's judgment. I remember mm -hmm. one time I, I was telling you earlier, I went to my um, supervisor and I said, you know, I have to go to an acupuncture appointment. And he was like, acupuncture? Because, you know, this was a health, I was dealing with a health issue right. and the doctor right. recommended acupuncture, but there's a judgment and there's a stigma in some of these issues. Right, right. I think the more that we can do, I mean, like ultimately, again, the power and the value for the employer is we're caring for the person early, we're helping them get to resources early, and in doing those things, we're shortening their recovery time, we're keeping them at work. So we're motivated to make sure that we're creating an environment where if acupuncture is the right thing for you, we bring support to it. So it does It does start with the manager, it does start with the team, it starts with a manager like establishing a one-on-one -on -one relationship with an employee in a way that um, allows a sense of freedom to talk about what's going on so that then the manager can be the first line of resources to point you to where you need to go, and your team might also be able to surround you and give you the support to get into programming, tools, et cetera. Okay, so we have a lot of employers in this room. What is the one thing they can do to take a more proactive approach 
to helping employees better manage, you know, their health issues and help the business thrive? I do think that ensuring that the resources that you offer are packaged in a way that it's easy for the individual to find where to start. So we leverage, like we leverage, we're fortunate, right? We leverage a handful of like navigation resources that our Cigna and Evernorth partners offer as solutions. So in, in an example from our workplace, as we realized that we needed to support um, richer access to mental health, then we instituted a product that allows navigation at the front end. Someone calls one person and says, I need help. And the navigator helps them then move through the experience, find a therapist, find other resources, and then ensures that they're cared for kind of on the back end. So I think that every way that you can make it simple and then wrap around that like culture of understanding so that individuals know that they know where to go to find a solution and they know that once they've identified a solution, there'll be support in the work community to care for themselves and be as healthy as possible as quickly as possible. We just have a little time left, but what about in terms of being more proactive, um, offering services? Um, you had mentioned that that Cigna has some programs um, for you know everyone will do some you know meditation or everyone will do some mm -hmm. exercise. How about you know seeking them out before they notice that they they're telling you yeah, that there's a yeah, problem. Yeah, yeah, we do a lot. We do a lot as a community, and I feel like that sometimes is missing in the way that we bring through these support threads. But um, any place that a person can have a partner and a commitment routine or whatever. So we leverage resources like we are a, a participant in the Peloton um, business solution, and we'll leverage that programming that we provide for free to our employees to ensure that like once a quarter, um, hopefully we're not having the summer Fridays or whatever <laughs> that were in that last question, but like, you know, on a really regular basis, we're saying everybody together, everybody together, let's do a meditation practice. Everybody together, let's focus on mobility. And through that, right, that is a really great reinforcement of those cultural aspects because it means that all the time, even when you're well, we're talking about wellness. Yeah, well, I mean, I think what you're saying is it's good for the employer and it's good for the employee. And we know that healthy, productive employees make healthy, productive companies and organizations in that prioritize and invest in the workforce's future health will be ones that will thrive in the future. Jill Vaslo, Vice President of Talent Strategy and Employee Wellbeing at Cigna Healthcare, thank you so much for joining us. Yep, Such an important you. conversation. Thank you. Thank you. And now, back to Washington Post Live. Good morning and welcome back. I am Ava Patrai, the economics correspondent here at The Post, and I am so thrilled to be joined by Kyla Scanlon. She is Gen Z's go-to, <clears throat> excuse me, financial educator, an author, podcaster, and content creator. You've probably seen her on YouTube or on TikTok breaking down important economic issues like inequality, the housing crisis, and Taylor Swift's impact on consumer spending. Kyla, thank you so much for joining us. Yeah, thanks for having me. Um, I'd like to start with your own personal experience. You graduated from Western Kentucky University in 2019, right before the pandemic, and you went to work at an asset management firm. What were your early impressions of the state of the workforce? 
Yeah, so when I graduated college, it was 2019. So six months later, the pandemic happened. So I only had about six months of like true office experience. And then all of a sudden, all of us were pulled into this world where everything was totally different. Um, so I didn't have a ton of experience like working in a true office, but then had a lot of experience doing remote work, um, coordinating via Zoom, trying to do things via Excel remotely as well. Um, so that was the early experience is just having a little bit of exposure to the office and then going virtual. And what did that shift to going virtual six months in? What did that, how did that affect your relationship with your job and with your perception of being in the workforce? Yeah, I mean, I think for me and like a lot of my peers at the time, it was very much, I think for everybody, it was like, oh my gosh, like life is short. And so I think a lot of people began to reevaluate the work that they were doing. For me, like I really wanted to start focusing purely on financial education and had a little bit of free time during the pandemic uh, to, to focus on that. And so for me, it became more about autonomy and like focusing on what I could do. Mm -hmm. um, and I was able to pursue that. And I think a lot of others went that entrepreneurial route as well during the pandemic because you had the sort of flexible time to, to focus on that, yeah. Absolutely. Um, in your videos, you've spoken a lot about how the American dream is rotting in front of your eyes for a lot of people in Gen Z. You guys came of age during the Great Recession, and then you had the pandemic hit right as you joined the workforce. Um, how has that shaped what Gen Z wants and what it values, and how is that different from previous generations? Yeah, I mean, I think it's to say like the American dream is rotting before our <laughs> eyes is like so intense, right? But you know, we have a housing crisis, we have really expensive healthcare, childcare costs are through the roof. And so I think that the younger generations, my generation is sort of looking at this and being like, what was promised is not necessarily being fulfilled. And of course, what was promised was a miracle almost, like the baby boomers had a really awesome opportunity that was um, a great thing to take advantage of for them. But I think for Gen Z, like there's a lot of frustration around um, just being hit constantly with, not to like make it whiny, because I don't think the basis of the argument is whiny, but I think there's a lot of frustration around like, how do we afford housing? How do we afford having children? How do we, you know, maintain employer benefits, uh, all of those things. So I think there's a big reckoning with that at the moment. Um, that's a great segue to the next question. I'd like to talk a little bit about mental health and how that sort of plays out in the workplace. In a recent survey, McKinsey and Company found that 55% of 18 to 24 year olds, more than half, said they'd received a diagnosis or treatment for a mental illness. What are, what are the pressures contributing to this and how do you, how do you approach that? Yeah, I mean, I think mental health is a very important topic. And a lot of people will point to social media as part of the issue because you're just constantly exposed to like all these things that honestly, we probably should never be seeing like all the things that we see on social media all the time. Like it's just um, totally exacerbating Dunbar's number, you know? But I think that the issue here is that people are clearly expressing a need for support and a need for help. Um, there's a lot of anxiety inducing things that people have to deal with. So I'd say that's like what we are seeing is people are just like, I don't know how to deal with the circumstances that I'm in. Um, and that's super difficult to solve for. How do you reconcile that as somebody who lives out a lot of your career on social media? Oh yeah, I mean, I recognize the hypocrisy <laughs> of what I'm saying, but I think that it's really tough because like, Jen, some, I was talking to somebody backstage and 
you know, Gen Z gets so much of their news from social media. They interact with their friends via social media. Like a lot of my friendships are purely online. And so I think that's like the double-edged sword of what we're dealing with is that we have become so entrenched in the internet world um, that you have to be almost a part of it. But it's also so damaging. It's like there's so many benefits, but there's also so many harmful things about it. And it's like, how do you balance those two things? And can you separate the two? Perfect. Um, moving back to the workplace a little bit, studies show that compared to previous generations, Gen Z places a significant emphasis on mental health and well-being and general work-life balance. Why is that? <laughs> I mean, I think like <laughs> I think that a lot of value is in the world outside of work. So I wrote this piece with Fast Company, sort of exploring that a little bit more. And for Gen Z, like. I think, and for millennials as well, not to like make it purely generational, and for everybody probably, but like there is a lot of value outside of the workplace. So your entire identity isn't tied to your jobs, like maybe it was for the baby boomers a little bit. And so I think for Gen Z, they're like, I need to have this personal life because my whole life isn't going to be built around you know this this career. Because as I argue in the Fast Company piece, like the career doesn't necessarily promise what it used to. Like you used to be able to get a pension and like be able to afford a house right out of college, maybe um, with a little bit of help probably. But I think that's like part of the issue is. Um, you know, the job isn't necessarily the job that it was. And so there's more focus outside of that. Um, I'd like to squeeze in a question from our audience. Efwa Ando from DC asks, what are your thoughts on how to address workplace mental health when so many rights are under threat? Rights like affirmative action, access to abortion, anti-LBGT legislation. How do you sort of work through all of that? Yeah, I mean, that's a tough question to answer because that's a policy question, right? Like, mm -hmm. how do you make sure that certain rights are enforced is something that I personally like, wish I had the power to do, but I don't. And I think that's where it's like you have to just advocate for certain policy measures. You have to make sure that your employers are aligned with the policies that you want to see in place. And that's how you probably address that mental health issue and make sure that people feel safe and comfortable. Can you talk a little bit from the employer's side here? Why is it important from their perspective to prioritize employees' mental health? Yeah, I mean, I think that if you have happy employees, you have productive employees, I think mm -hmm. tying the two together can feel a little icky sometimes, but that's the truth of it. And um, you know, people are people. And there was this clip floating around on Twitter of somebody like talking about, you know, you work for your employer and like you should not be lazy and all this stuff. And I think that there should be maybe a little bit more symbiosis between the employer and the employee. Um, it maybe shouldn't be as hierarchical where it's like uh, sort, sort of tiered. Um, so I think that's like how employers can think about that is if you take care of your employees, they'll likely do better work for you. Right. Corporate America has long been accused of placing profit over people. Um, and that's something that came up a lot, especially during the pandemic. What are your thoughts on that? And how does Gen Z fit into the picture? Yeah, I mean, that's a tough question to answer. So a lot of my work is like around finance, around the stock market um, and the economy at large. And that's something that comes up a lot in my comment section mm -hmm. is like people only care about making money. And of course, you know, when people say things, there's, there's an element of truth to that. And so I'd say that Gen Z is, is probably aware. And like one thing that I've been, you know, advocating for, because it's easy to be like, everything is wrong with the world, but you have to come up with some solutions. And I think ownership opportunities, mm -hmm. so employee um, stock option plans, similar to like what Starbucks has or other companies similar to that, where, com or where employees can have ownership in the company. 
company um, that can help maybe distribute the profits the company is making to to the people that work there. Um, and yeah, so I would say that's like the biggest thing. I don't know if Gen Z particularly thinks like that, but I think that's a good option. Yeah. Perfect. Um, this is a generation, like you said earlier, that grew up for the most part entirely in the digital age. A lot of that has meant being on social media for your work, for your personal life. How has that shaped the way Gen Z thinks about topics like mental health and the future of work? Yeah, I think it's again that double-edged sword. So when you're on social media, you're exposed to anybody who has an opinion mostly. Uh -huh. And so there's all sorts of opinions that you have to filter through. And so I think a lot of people um, have found out about their mental health through social media, which is kind of tough. Mm -hmm. um, it's super difficult to figure out like exactly what everything means in the mental health space. And so I think a lot of people are turning to apps like TikTok and like listening to creators talk about their own journeys and then aligning with that journey. Um, so I'd say like it's been useful for people to go along that path, but it's still tough to figure out exactly how you should calibrate your own mental health journey to what you're hearing from the crowd. How do you balance your life online versus the rest of your life, and how do you sort of find the right balance there? Yeah, I mean, it's uh, I'm super grateful like to have to think about that, but it's just uh, it can be a little bit difficult because when you're online, nobody sees you as a person, um, so you're just kind of this character, right? And so they'll say whatever they want, <laughs> um, and that's okay. Like you know, some people just have to air it out sometimes, but. I would say for me, it's um, sometimes about balancing out the comments and um, just making sure that I'm remaining aligned to what I know about myself. Um, and then also not engaging with certain topics because it can just be, it's hard. You know, our brains seek out negative news. Like we love that um, from an evolutionary perspective. Uh, so I'd say that's you just being mindful of that, yeah. Do you read all the comments? <laughs> uh, if I do, I get kind of sad. <laughs> so I don't read the comments uh, as much as I used to. Um, but yeah, I like yeah, most of them are supportive. Mm -hmm. But uh, if, and I think most people can sort of realize this is like when you see one bad comment and you have like 10 really nice comments, it's <laughs> like, oh, I'm just going to focus on the really bad comment. Uh, so I, I would say that's something that I just have to work on and other creators feel similar. Yeah. Perfect. Uh, and do you think the predominance of social media has helped or hindered mental health initiatives in the workplace? How do those two things work together? I mean, I think, again, it's a double-edged sword. So I would say that a lot of people are getting a lot of information from social media about mental health, as I mentioned earlier. And I'm not sure if it's always like quality information. Mm -hmm. um, so I think people might be like misaligned on, on what exactly is going on for them. And then they're sort of trying to figure out their own mental health journey without maybe a support network in place, so they're navigating alone. So I'd say like workplaces having you know the efforts as, as we've been talking about today um, throughout all the panels is super valuable for that journey for people. Perfect. How has building your presence online on your own terms in social media influenced the way that you personally think about work and think about the role of work in someone's life? I mean, I think, so there's this survey that'll float around sometimes where it's like, what do kids want to be when they grow up? And like a lot of them <laughs> want to be YouTubers. And I was thinking about that because I was like, uh, you know, people will be like, oh, why do they want to be YouTubers? They should be astronauts. And I think what's really interesting about the creator journey is that you have a lot of autonomy and you're able to like explore different ideas. You're able to test out different ideas. You're able to sort of build community and engage with people who um, are also interested in the topics that you're talking about. And so I think that's like the coolest thing about um, the creator economy or people just creating content online is that you're able to have that autonomy. You're able to explore ideas. You're able to sort of test stuff out with people who are interested in that. Yeah. 
what did you want to be when you were growing up? And was it a YouTube creator? No, I actually I wanted to be an author. Um, so I have a book. <laughs> sounds like a plug, but I have a book coming out in April 2024. So it's like really cool to be able to achieve that dream. Yeah. Perfect. Yeah. We are almost running out of time. So one last question. What is your biggest piece of advice to Gen Z as they enter today's workforce? I mean, I think it's a balance, right? So one thing I've also talked a lot about and other people have talked a lot about too is that there's a passion crisis. Um, so it's really difficult to figure out what you care about um, because there's sort of guardrails in place throughout all of the educational journey where it's like I have to get straight A's so I can get the best college, so I can get the best job. And then you'll have the best job and you're kind of like, what do I do now? And so I'd say the biggest thing is just making sure that you're paying attention to your passions and like allowing them the space to flourish. Um, but yeah, I would say that's like the largest thing is just knowing what you care about. And on the flip side of that, what can employers do to make an welcoming environment for Gen Z as they come in? I mean, I think flexibility is, is really big. Uh, just making sure that you know the mental health is addressed, making sure that people feel comfortable um, coming to their employers with issues that they might be having. And then I, one thing I advocated for in this Fast Company article was um, allowing people to explore their passions. And mm -hmm. you know maybe it's a different project or some sort of idea that you could integrate into the company. But I'd say that's the biggest thing, is just paying attention, yeah. Perfect. Well, we are just about out of time. So thank you so much for joining us today, Kyla. Thanks. Thanks for listening. For more information on our upcoming programs, go to WashingtonPostLive.com.